Well, a couple of weeks ago, I, I believe I opened a sermon talking about uh, the, the assumption of God. That, that wherever you go in humanity, wherever you go in history, for the most part, there is the assumption of God. We assume there's a God. We assume He exists. And with that assumption comes uh, some pretty universal questions. The one we dealt with that morning was, where is He? I mean, if there's a God, we, we want to know where He is. And we found out that uh, one of the gifts we have to open this Christmas is the gift of Jesus. It's Emmanuel, God with us. Man, what an incredible thing to think when we think about where God is. He's not just nearby. He's not just within an, an arm's reach or a call away. Man, God's living in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit. And that's possible because Jesus entered this world at this time that we celebrate and we call Christmas. So that, that was one of the gifts that we looked at. Today we look at another gift and it answers another one of these questions. Now, if, if, if this is your first Sunday here, we haven't been looking at a series of questions, but a, a series of gifts. But folks, God's gifts answer questions. God's gifts meet needs. And, and the question that we're looking at today, very universal question, I think we start asking it about this high. What's he look like? Right? What, what does God look like? Now, we're pretty sure he's very old, and we're pretty sure he's got a long gray beard. That, that view of God has been pretty much cemented into our mind. I don't quite know where it came from. Maybe the Sistine Chapel, maybe Charlton Heston being Moses did that for us. I, I don't know, but we got that view of God. Although, surprisingly, you don't really go anywhere in Scripture and see God being described as a really old man with a really long gray beard. As a matter of fact, it's kind of surprising when you do see God's appearance described. For example, in 1 Timothy 1.17, it says, Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, God... Invisible? Man, there it is. Invisible. That's no fun. Gosh, yeah, we knew... We've heard about God being a king and, and eternal and immortal, but, but invisible? Man, we don't want God to be invisible. We, we, we need more than that. As a matter of fact, even though the scripture says that, I don't think we buy it. I, I think we just ignore it. I mean, even right now, some of you are in here thinking, now wait a minute, doesn't it say this? And what about this over here? And I know it says this. It says he is invisible. Now, the fact that God is invisible does not mean he has not or cannot manifest himself visibly and, and physically. He has and he does. Uh, Moses saw his glory. Isaiah and Ezekiel saw images of God on his throne. The apostle John in Revelation saw an image of God on his throne. So we see that, but let's be honest, we want a little bit more in the story, don't we? we? We want a little bit more than, well, this guy said. No, man, we want to see God. Well, Merry Christmas, because God wants you to see him too. And that is a gift that he has for you. Let's look and see how he explains this gift and gives it to us. Would you turn this morning to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. You would not call this a kind of a traditional Christmas passage by any stretch of the imagination. But it is a passage that talks about Jesus being seen in this world. Coming to us in this world. And so it really is about what Christmas accomplishes. Col Colossians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some in the chairs in front of you. If it's not right in front of you, it's on the row there somewhere. Just point to it and somebody will hand it to you. Colossians, you'll find it a little over halfway through your New Testament, past Ephesians and Philippians. 
get to Timothy or Thessalonians, you've gone too far. Now, this is the, this is the fourth message in this series. We've, we've been in a series called Under the Tree. And, and we're looking at gifts that come to you and me because, solely because, God entered this world in the person of Jesus. Because there's a Christmas. And we know that, that God entered this world in Jesus and He made His way to that tree that we call the cross. And folks, it's the cross that purchased these gifts. We've looked at forgiveness We've looked at success, we've looked at God with us, and today we look at the gift of being able to see God. Let's look at it here, Colossians chapter 1, I'll begin reading in verse 15. It says there, He is the image of the invisible God, He is Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, because by Him everything was created in heaven and on earth. The visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of the cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now, if you look down there again at that first line, there's those two words again, invisible God. I mean, there must be something to this idea. And yet this passage is not about the invisibility of God. This passage is about the visibleness of God. It starts off right away there saying that Jesus is the image of God. He is the image. Now we need to think about that word image because that word in the Greek language means something a little more than what we would read in the English language. In the English, when you see that word, you see that's the image of somebody. You think of a picture, right? A picture, a reflection, a stamp. That person's image is on the stamp. Or, or if you saw a picture of somebody, if you saw a, a picture of me, or maybe even you got to see that great image we share around this church, Flat Randy. I know a lot of you haven't seen that, but, but you, if you've been around, you've seen Flat Randy, the, a full-size image of me. It's my favorite image. I have it on the wall. If you saw uh, Flat Randy propped up right here, you would say, if you saw it in a mall, I don't know why it would be there, but let's say you did. You'd say, there's Randy. You'd say, that's Randy Hahn. But no, that's not really Randy Hahn, is it? That's a... That's a picture of. But that's how we would express it. There, there's his image. There he is. Now, while we would say that, I don't think I could get away with propping this image up here and then us playing a recording of this sermon while I get out on an early break for Christmas. <laughs> I doubt you'd go home and say, well, Randy was there today. Stayed in one spot the whole time. That was kind of unusual. No, you would not say I was here just because my image was here. And that's why I say you've got to really understand this word because it does not mean that in the way this word is used in the Greek language. That word in the Greek actually contains the presence of reality. It contains the presence of actuality. When it says Jesus is the image of the invisible God, it's not saying Jesus is a representation of God. It's not saying that Jesus is a replica, a picture of God. It's not even saying that Jesus is the part of God that we get to see. It is saying that Jesus is God. When you see the image, you see God. Now, to make sure that you and I have got it, 
That, that we don't miss exactly what he's trying to communicate here. That Jesus is the image of God. That Jesus is God. You, you look down there in your Bible. And, and from verse 15 on, you just see Paul just kind of lining up phrase after phrase. Description after description about who this guy is. His uniqueness. His prominence. His preeminence over creation. So that we understand what it means when we say he's God. Now, it starts off there by saying he is the firstborn. Now, that's a, that's a little bit of a tricky one. Because when we think of a firstborn, we think of somebody what? It's not the trick question. It's the first one born. Okay. You know, the, the first crowd got that right away. And they, they wake up a lot earlier than y'all. I kind of anticipate a little bit more sharpness there. Yeah, the first one born is the, the first child that a couple has. The, the first born in a family. Now, when we hear that word born, we think of a birth, right? We, we think of a beginning. They didn't exist before the beginning, but now they've been born. They, they've had a beginning, and, and now they're here. Some wrongly interpret this word to say this, that Jesus is the firstborn, and God has many children. Jesus was just the first one, and, and that this is his beginning. One, one group that teaches that, uh, that, that holds that belief is the Mormons. Mormons do not believe in the eternal nature of Jesus Christ. They do not believe he eternally existed, but that he had a birth, he had a beginning. And in that beginning, he had a brother. His name was Satan. Jesus and Satan are brothers, absolutely equal in their creation, absolutely equal in their beginning. Yes, one went good and one went bad, but they're just nothing more than brothers. They do believe, they'll say, oh yeah, Jesus became God but no differently than anybody in this room is going to become God as we get up into heaven. And so there's nothing unique about Jesus in his birth. There's nothing unique about Jesus in the way he became God. You know, folks, have you noticed in the last couple of years that Mormonism has almost risen to kind of just being seen as another denomination in the Christian faith? I mean, you're hearing that more and more. Absolutely nothing has changed about their beliefs in the last hundred plus years where they have been considered a heretical cult. And that is what they are. A heretical cult. They are nothing, absolutely nothing like Christianity. They do not believe anything like what we believe about Jesus. You know, there's differences between denominations. I mean, you take next door St. Anne's Catholic or across the street Ivy Memorial Methodist. You know, there's some things we look at differently. They'll look at one passage and they kind of see this and another passage and they kind of go and we believe a little bit differently. But you know what? I don't believe they have to leave their church and come to ours to be genuine believers. I don't believe they have to leave their church and come over here to be saved. Mormons do believe that. So do you realize the lying and the deceitfulness of them when they present themselves as just another part of the Christian faith? When in actuality, they believe you have to leave that faith, come to theirs to ultimately be saved into the highest heaven. So do not for a second fall into the lie and deception that they're just a, a, another denomination. You know, they got a, their own way of... No, it's not another way. It's a heretical, unorthodox way of looking at Christ. Now, that still leads to the question, well, what does firstborn mean then? What are we saying there in that? Well, folks, firstborn in this context, context is always key to interpretation. In this context is little more than a title. It's not about birth. Jews use the title firstborn. And yes, absolutely, quite often, most of the time with the first one born. But it is a title and it is a position in the Jewish faith 
We have a a very well-known great story in the Old Testament where you see it not applying to birth order. You remember uh, those twin boys, Jacob and Esau? Isaac's boys, they didn't get along real well. They were twins in the womb at the same time. But even with twins, one of them's coming out first, right? Folks, I promise you, no trick questions this morning. This is just for fun, kind of rhetorical, engages you and keeps you awake, okay? Two plus two equals every single time, praise God. Okay, so you got Jacob and Esau, they're twins. Esau comes out first, and so he now possesses the title firstborn. And in the Jewish faith, a lot comes with that. Well, Esau's firstborn, well, they grow up. These guys don't get along. Esau comes in off the field one day. Y'all remember the story? Starving to death. He sees uh, Jacob over there. He's got himself a nice bowl of soup. And, and he says, I, man, give me some of that soup. Jacob, he's a smart one. Jacob knows Esau, not so smart. And so Jacob says, I'll tell you what I'll do, Esau. I'll give you a bowl of soup. I'll sell it to you. Esau says, for what? Your birthright. Now Esau, and what I can only imagine is just an incredible moment of short-sightedness, says, okay. And he gives, uh, he gives Jacob his birthright. Jacob now has the title and position firstborn. Now in our culture, in our understanding of that word, we say, well, that's, that's stupid. The bowl of soup doesn't mean that Jacob now came out first. No, but we're not talking about who came out first. We're not actually talking about birth or birth order. It is a title and it is a position. Jesus holds the title firstborn of creation. What that word means in the Jewish culture is you hold the position of preeminence. You hold the position of prominence. You are in the first place over creation. You see the word used again down in, what is it, verse 18, verse 19, firstborn, verse 18, firstborn from the dead. Folks, death doesn't give birth, does it? Death is not a mother carrying children. See, it's, it's not a reference to birth. It's firstborn of the dead. Jesus holds the place of prominence, the, the place of preeminence over those resurrected. Wherever you go in creation, he holds the first place. He holds the, the first title. He is absolutely unique in that. And then it begins to further, Paul, describe creation in relation to Jesus. And it says that everything, everything, and in the Greek language and in the English language, oddly enough, everything means... Hey, yo, wait a minute, we're sharp now, aren't we? We're dead on it. Bring it, bring it. Let's go with some chemistry here or something. Yeah, everything is everything. And look, to make sure you and I get everything actually means everything, Paul says everything that's visible, now we got that, right? Sun, the moon, stars, rocks, skies, trees, people. Everything invisible, the demon world, the angelic world, everything spiritual, everything physical, everything created in, through, and for Jesus. Boy, there's a lot to unwrap in those prepositions. We're not going to do that this morning, but there actually is a lot being communicated. I'll wrap it up real quickly saying this. Everything, Jesus is the answer to how and why. Think how much time we spend in school and in life trying to answer the question, how did we get here and why are we here? The answer is Jesus and Jesus. Jesus is how we got here. Jesus is the why we got here. Why meaning he's the purpose. He is the purpose of your life. Do you realize that's true whether you're Christian or not? Whether you're a believer or not? Whether you know it or not? Jesus is the creator of everything whether anyone acknowledges it or not. And therefore is the purpose of everything. Folks, look around the world. Won't we all want to know why we're here? 
And we're looking for that purpose in all kinds of things, all kinds of people, all kinds of achievements. If you're looking for purpose in anything outside of the real purpose, you're only going to find something frustrated and broken. I mean, a a vacuum cleaner can try to be a lawnmower. It's going to end up broken and frustrated, right? A broom can try to be a baseball bat. It's going to end up broken and frustrated. And people can try to find purpose in anything and everything other than Christ, and they're going to end up... Well, just like we see people all around us every day, right? Frustrated and broken. Jesus is the purpose. And Jesus is, and I love the way Paul just kind of says, let's just pull this together in case you still haven't gotten it. Jesus in Jesus contains the fullness. Do you see that phrase? The fullness of God. In other words, when you look at Jesus, there's nothing about God that's missing. When you look at Jesus, there's not something about God that is somewhere else, not even, not even next to him. When you look at Jesus, you're looking at the fullness, the entirety, the wholeness of God forever and ever. Eternity past, eternity future. So when you look at Jesus, he is God. And it is in Jesus that everything, those closing verses, is going to get fixed. Everything is going to be reconciled, brought back, made right, and fixed with God. Ultimately, specifically, most clearly, that's referring to the sin in your life and in my life. My soul is going to be reconciled with God by Jesus. My life is going to be made right with God by Jesus. But folks, it's not just, it's everything. Newtown is going to be reconciled. It's going to be made right by Jesus. The places in your life that have shattered peace are going to be made right by Jesus. He fixes everything. Everything will be brought to peace before God, either peacefully or by force. It will come by peace or it will come by submission. But Jesus will reconcile everything. When you look at Jesus, you're looking at God. We've seen God. Now let's, let's think about that statement, we've seen God, because we have seen God through human eyeballs, right? Yeah, there's hundreds of eyewitnesses that saw him, and we can look through their eyes, because guess what, folks? All those people who saw Jesus walking on this earth, their eyeballs are the exact same as yours and mine. And behind those eyeballs are the same fears and frustrations and hurts, Behind those eyeballs are the same dreams and desires and and questions and hopes. Those people that looked at him are just like you and I. What did they see? What did they see and how did they respond? Because when we see what they see, we've seen God. When we see how they responded, maybe we learned something about how we should respond. Maybe we learned something about what they saw that yielded that response. For instance, let's think about the shepherds and the wise men. What did they see? A baby. What do you do with the baby? Diapers? Some onesies? They brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and they fell down and worshipped. What did they see that said, this is not like every other baby? See, we learn something about what we see when we see the baby Jesus. You don't go ooh and ah and pinch. You fall down and worship and give. What about in the spiritual realm? The angels, when they saw that baby, angels created smarter and more powerful than you and me. And yet when they saw Jesus, they worshipped and they sang. What about the demons? Man, all through the New Testament, we see demons interacting with the, the person of Jesus. And they called him the Holy One. And every time he spoke to him, they obeyed. 
It's kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? When you think of demons, you think of those beings that, that exist, that live to fight God's will, to fight God, to, to disobey at every turn, right? And yet when Jesus looks at one of them and speaks, they don't have a choice about what they're going to do. Oh, what did we just see? We see somebody who when they speak, their authority is overwhelming and you can't fight it. You see, we see something about his power and authority in that. The demons had to obey when he looked at them and spoke. Boy, we hear something else about the authority of his voice. Just the way you and I, just the regular people heard him. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Man, when it was all done, they packed up their picnic basket and their blanket and they started to head home. What were they talking about what they saw? Man, I've never heard anything like that. And how many people have you heard teach in life? Gosh, there's pastors, there's teachers at school, there's insurance seminars. I'm not sure that counts. But we hear all kinds of people speak. And they said, I've never heard anyone speak. Think about that statement. If you were there that day and you saw him, you'd be saying, I've never heard anyone, not in any situation, not in any context, I've never heard anyone speak like that. Such clarity, such force of truth, such authority. What were they saying? That's what we see. What about Jesus' parents? When he was 12 years old, what did they see? Somebody who honored and obeyed and respected authority. Boy, don't we need to see that about God? Because let's be honest, if you're an American, that just almost by default means you despise authority. You're always looking to get a little angle on authority. Jesus, the Son of God, honored and obeyed and respected the authorities he was in as a human person. What did, uh, what did the woman caught in adultery, what did she see? Did she not see in Jesus someone who had compassion where nobody else had compassion? Didn't she see love and forgiveness in the eyes of Jesus where everybody else was ready to stone her? And yet Jesus was able, think about what she saw because we're so out of balance in things. You know, we're either too nice or too mean and getting to the middle is just hard, isn't it? But Jesus was able to show perfect love and compassion, but at the same time hold the truth and what is right. Because after he said, I, I forgive you, what did he say then? Go and sin no more. My friend, Jesus will forgive you of any sin, any sin in your life. Boy, that's gracious and kind, isn't it? But in the same breath, he'll look at you and say, now don't ever do that again. Grace and love and forgiveness is not for the purpose of you wearing a parachute back into the sin. Man, isn't it easy for us to say, well, I'll be forgiven. I'd be willing to bet most of us have actually knowingly, knowledge, stepped into sin with the concept, I'll be forgiven. Jesus said, no, don't do that ever again. Love, truth, perfectly blended together. What did, uh, what did Lazarus see? <laughs> I'd like to bend those eyes, wouldn't you? Especially as they were unwrapping the tomb clothes from me. Lazarus, who'd been dead four days and heard the voice of Jesus call him out. And he comes out and they start unwrapping and he looks into the eyes of Jesus. What did he see? All the authority in the universe over life and death. What, what about the Roman centurion? Remember the guy at the cross? I mean, here we are, look, talk, all these people seeing Jesus' power, seeing Jesus' authority over the spiritual realm, over the physical realm. But what did the Roman centurion see? He saw Jesus probably at his most 
Humiliated, right? Humiliated, humbled, broken, beaten, bloodied, bruised. I mean, folks, it's not actually an image that you'd want to see. You'd want to turn away. Some of us get sick on our stomach. Oh, I don't want to see that. And yet in that moment, that's when the Roman guard looking at that said what? Truly this man is the... And what did he see? What did he see? This is the Son of God. What about doubting Thomas? And really, isn't doubting Thomas just doubting humanity? <laughs> I mean, you've seen somebody rise from the dead? I haven't. doesn't happen. And Thomas, who'd been told by Jesus, I'm going to rise three days later, wasn't looking for it. And then when it happened, when 10 of his best friends in life, do you believe your best friends? Do you trust, even if it's a little bit unbelievable, not one of them, not two of them, if 10 of your best friends in life came and said, Thomas, we've seen him, we saw it, touched him, and he's alive. Thomas said, I don't believe it. He didn't just say, I don't believe it, like, oh, I can't believe that. He said, I won't believe it. Not until I touch him, not until I see him. Seven days later, he got the opportunity to do that. Seven days later, he placed his eyeballs on the living, resurrected Jesus Christ. What did he see? Led him to say, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus said to him, you, you believe because you've seen, right? I, I respect that. I understand that. You're human. We like to see. We like to touch. We're pretty physical. Blessed are those 2,000 years from now who will believe without seeing. Who will believe based on the eyewitnesses and what they saw. You and I have seen God. You cannot, you should not, it's not appropriate anymore to say, I've never seen God. You and I have seen God in the person of Christ. That is a gift that has been given to us. But this gift has a caveat. This gift has a purpose. There's a reason that you've been allowed to see God. We read it in Colossians 1 just now. You've been allowed to see Him, verse 18, so that God might come to have first place in everything. You realize now, you came in here, I imagine many of you, you know the Bible, you've read the Bible, you've studied the Bible. This is many Christmases that you've been celebrating the true reason for the season. Maybe somebody's in here right now, you've never opened the Bible, you don't know anything. Wherever you are on the whole spectrum of that, do you realize now you have seen God and you'll be held accountable for that for all eternity? You'll be held accountable for the fact that you have seen God this morning. Well, what am I accountable to do? Put him in first place in everything. Now, we can certainly think about that in the big picture. God's first place in my life. He's Lord. He's God. He, he's over my life. But really, we need to leave the big picture because a lot of us, let's be honest, we can, we can make the big statement and never bring it down to where it actually affects anything and how we live. In other words, folks, the big statement has to come down here. Is he first place in every area of my finances? Somebody opened my checkbook, if they saw how I spend money, would they say, man, clearly, clearly Jesus Christ holds first place in your life. As we sit here at the beginning of a new year, 2013, I imagine we could probably cut the room in half and half of you are scared about what 2013 holds. The other half, I can't wait till it gets here because of what 2013 holds. Would it be clear in what you're afraid of or what you're excited about that clearly in that Jesus Christ is first place? The way you talk about it, 
The way you anticipate it, the way you prepare for it, is it clear that Jesus is in first place in that? What about your relationships? Can we walk through the relationships of your life? Marriage, parenting, children, enemies, co-workers. We just watch the way you talk about people, interact with people, relate with people. Man, clearly, Christ is ruling you. Christ is leading you in every single one of those relationships. Is it clear that he's in first place? That is what you and I will be held accountable to. Why? Because you've seen... I haven't seen... Yes, you've seen God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And you've seen him through hundreds of eyewitness testimonies. See, first place in everything. Let's pray. Jesus, this is, is really a message that I think just gets a process started. It, it doesn't wrap anything up for us. It, it kind of it unwraps it. Now, now we're on number one of the instructions. Lord, I, don't, I hope nobody will be mad at me for praying this today. But I, I pray for every person in this room right now that that idea of you being first will gnaw at them all week long. Lord, I, I genuinely want everybody in here to have a great week. I pray they enjoy friends and family. I, I pray there's a, some time of rest in there. I pray they enjoy some good things. But, but Lord, there's a part of me that wants to pray that nobody in here can enjoy anything this week until they think on this idea, does Jesus hold first place in every area of my life? And Lord, somewhere today, somewhere in this week, we just take some time alone and, and we begin to think about what that means and what would that look like. If I said Jesus was first in my marriage, what would that mean I'm doing? If I said Jesus was first place at my work, what would that mean I'm doing? What am I acting like? What am I saying? What would I be doing that that's what people would see that Jesus is in first place? God, would you just lead us to work that thought over this week? Because, Lord, I do believe every single one of us in here, we want to be found faithful when our time of accountability comes due. When it's time to stand before you and account for the gifts I've been given and what I've done with them. Lord, I want to recognize and acknowledge that I have indeed seen the living God. And I want to be accountable. I want to be faithful with what I'm supposed to do with that sight. Lord, it's hard to even imagine what would happen if all across this room, every home, every life, began to see this radical transformation, transition to seeing God clearly put in first place. God, would you help us take that down off the mantle? Help us take it out off the stratosphere of just some kind of statement that we make and we actually live Jesus being first. We'll, we'll absolutely need your help. And I'm thankful that you're there to give it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.